welcome to the Theology Podcast. We are back virtually. We were actually physically in each other's presence just a few days ago uh, in the Nashville area in Lebanon at the Fight Lap Feast Network Conference. And by the way, that was great. If we met you there or talked to you there, we are really glad we had that opportunity to do that. And I hope you agree with us that it was just a, a marvelous event. Anyway, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, just outside of Portland. I've written some books. I've been a, a professor of philosophy. I've done some real estate investing. I've even been a contractor uh, doing uh, home improvement and construction. Anyway, that's enough about me. Uh, why don't we go to you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and I have uh, my own 501c3 called Every Square Inch Ministries that I also run. I've done a lot of different things like Chris, but all of mine fall in the egghead category. <laughs> well, we got to have eggheads in the world. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tom. Um, did Tom you, did Price, you hear me, Tom? I teach uh, systematic. Yeah, you hear me? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, uh, Christian ethics, philosophy, and a variety of other things. Um, I've done plenty of things in life. I won't list all of them here, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I do play guitar. Um, I did my undergrad in that, so that has definitely enhanced my vision of the world a little bit. And uh, I teach these things at a variety of places, so, uh, so that's enough about me at this moment. <laughs> yeah, you've, in fact, uh, you're going to have the show today, uh, Tom, but before we jump into that, I wanted to say something. Uh, about our Pacific Northwest tour. Now that we're past the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference, we can talk about that. Anyway, uh, if you live in the Pacific Northwest or if you uh, are really wealthy and you want to fly to the Pacific, Pacific Northwest just to see us, you can do that. And uh, we're going to be in three locations. We're going to be in the Portland, Oregon area, uh, You know, probably on the Washington side of the Columbia River, and then we're going to be up in Seattle, uh, and then we're going to be going to Moscow, Idaho. So kind of a L right there in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to be in the Portland area on October 30th and 31st. And uh, we will let you know uh, a little more about the venues uh, as things come together. But uh, that is where we'll be. Uh, during those dates, the 30th and 31st in the Portland, Oregon area. Then we're going to be up in the Seattle area on the uh, second. Uh, well, it could be the first, second, and third, or just the second and third. We're not entirely uh, clear yet how that's all going to work out, but we're going to be in the Seattle area on those days. So it'd be Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the first, second, and third uh, of November will be in Seattle. And then we'll be going to Moscow and we'll be in Moscow the 4th, 5th, uh, uh, and that'll be it. We'll be there for two days, the 4th and 5th. That's Thursday and Friday of that week in November. So that's what's going on with that. We're going to be getting a page up on our website with uh, the information when we have it all worked out, sort of all the details, venues, that, and so forth, and times. 
So if you are in the area, please, uh, or in the Pacific Northwest, please at least put on your calendar at this point where we'll be and when. Portland, Seattle, and Moscow in uh, you know October and November. All right, enough of that. Why don't we? Oh, I, there's one more thing I wanted to say. We uh, are, have been talking about merchandise. Merchandise. Everybody has a T-shirt, and so do we. Isn't that beautiful? It's so hideous. <laughs> it's beautiful. That's us. Our heads on a pug, and uh, so it's a three-headed uh, Cerberus pug. And man, we had people freaking out when they saw that. And it was like a cult classic. It's like you know one of those just really awful things, like. Uh, Revenge of the Killer Tomatoes or something. Anyway, enough of that. So, Tom, you told <laughs> us about what we're going to be talking about today, and it's going to be a fun conversation. We've got a little bit of a delay uh, with you, Tom, when you talk. So we'll do our best to try to maybe wave at you to give you an idea when we're ready to talk. And then you can kind of, you know, so we're not step, stepping on each other as we as we interact. But anyway, take it away. Okay. So hopefully that delay is not too bad. Um, so today what I wanted to do is uh, I want to talk about a, a book in particular. Um, this book is by the author Paul Tyson. Um, Paul has uh, written a variety of books on um, themes of, I think, metaphysics and, and uh, I mean, classical visions of transcendence. Um, and really uh, the 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 full Christian vision that is behind someone like C.S. Lewis or Tolkien in their approach to, to setting forth um, what they think um, are the best and deepest insights of that rich Christian understanding of things. Um, and this book is a little bit different for him in that it, it's dealing with it from the angle of magic. So the title of the book is Seven Brief Lessons on magic. Now, before everyone starts freaking out and thinking we've really gone occult, um, <laughs> um, he, he, he's kind of utilizing the term magic here, maybe in a way akin to the way Tolkien was understanding um, that ability to harness certain kinds of meanings and forces that Tolkien used in a deep connection with technology, or um, or thinking of it in a way similar to Charles Williams, who was another inkling um, friend of Lewis and the rest, who really spent a little more time on, on focusing on that. But I guess uh, just to start with, he's not really using the term so differently than the term enchantment. Um, magic and enchantment are, are pretty much, he's actually taking the German word that Weber used to set, talk about disenchantment, and call, calling it basically magic, right? Or, or demagicizing when we, we take away from the enchanted world. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about the book is first, it's the setting that he's, he's um, trying to work these ideas out of. And he is first looking at it from that kind of flat view of reality that modern scientism has given us. Um, in which there is something basically that is reducible to a mechanistic view of nature. This is something we've talked about a lot on this show. We talked a little bit about it this weekend. And so what he wants to do is talk, talk about the way in which um, 
the truth lens is his term, I think, here, um, from which modern science looks at things. Um, it can see certain things, and, and those things it sees, it sees pretty well. Um, but there's a lot of things that it cannot see. And so the term magic here is a way of talking about, the, this is his way of putting it, the shimmering cosmic meanings and the dangerous and life-giving powers that are just below the surface of the apparent. In other words, there's more going on than, than it, to reality than that which, for example, a natural reductionistic scientific view can give. This is something we've talked about over and over again on this show, um, but we haven't really talked about it from this sense of, uh, of using the, the term magic or, and all that resonate. Um, but so the first part of the book is really setting up how the scientific world as we, we've received it, how it's really flattened our view of reality, but it hasn't gotten away from the magical. Um, it has just, it's, it's kind of replaced it. And he spends a lot of time talking about the way in which technology has, is, is infused with all of these harnessing of powers and, 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 and realities um, that, that raise the question of magic. But then he also notes the fascination with the fantastical and the fanta even the fascination um, with Tolkien, with Harry Potter, and all the, these different kinds of... Um, visions that don't really find a, a proper setting within the nat naturalistic vision of things. And so that's a context yeah, in which he, he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tom, it reminds me a little bit of uh, a book that uh, your, your introduction uh, reminds me of, a book that a fellow named Jaron uh, Lanier uh, wrote entitled You Are Not a Gadget. Mm. Uh, manifesto. This is an odd book hmm. in the sense that uh, Lanier is actually a techie. He's a, he's a, he's kind of a veteran of Silicon hmm. Valley, and he makes the distinction between qualitative and quantitative. Uh, basically, yeah. machines uh, and essentially this you know science as it's practiced uh, are you know focused on the quantitative, the, you know being able to to measure. Uh, things uh, and thereby create a kind of mathematical correspondence between the physical world and the world of math. Uh, that's where we, you know, see physicists do all of their work, and that's all great. But there's no qualitative, really, uh, possibilities or sort of recognition, or you can't, you can't, uh, you can't translate the qualitative into the numerical. That you know, these are these are two different yeah. modes and uh you yeah. can talk about m math being beautiful and you can make you know that kind of statement which is qualitative in nature and what what uh but you can't do you can't do uh the reverse you can't take the qualitative and reduce it to the quant and uh, he was addressing essentially the the challenge of of artificial intelligence his point is that yeah, artificial intelligence will never move from the quantitative into the qualitative, which eliminates the possibility of consciousness, you know, the, the sort of the singularity yes. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, I, where I would go with this is um, 
well, a couple places. Uh, you know, this brings me right back to the word ramble on enchantment that I did a while ago. But one of the other ways of thinking about it is using Francis Schaeffer's idea of upper and lower story thinking or the fact value distinction, to use a more technical term. The idea here is that the upper story of the world is the world of, um, well, values. It's the world of faith. It's the world of aesthetics, all of those kinds of things. The lower story is the empirical world. And to someone in scientism, the lower story is the only world that exists. Yeah. And so the, what, what ends up happening is that there are attempts to invade the upper story from the lower story. So love, for example, is, de is defined as hormones. It's just simply literally chemistry. It's a chemical response. Um, they try to come up with rules for aesthetics so that they can mathematize the ideas of beauty and things like that. Um, and, and just try to find a purely material explanation for all of these things. So the lower story can kind of attack the upper story. You can't use the upper story to explain the lower story, though. That's that's verboten. Yeah. So that that's the traditional way it works. And what, what it seems to me this is doing is it's suggesting a middle ground between the two. Yeah. So that you have a you have an area that is carved out that participates in both the upper and the lower story, in a sense. Um, yeah. So it's a middle between the two. Um, and, and I think his way of framing it, it it'll make a little more sense when I, I kind of sum up the, the four what he calls the four kind of views of magic that, are, that really really don't have many alternatives. Um, and one of the things that's a little tricky here, and I'm trying to constantly communicate this, and this is very hard to do, but the very notion of a two-tiered universe is itself a byproduct of movements away from classical views of transcendence. That's why the, right. the, the uh, true Christianity, um, when it carved out its view of transcendence, had more affinity with the Platonic view because it didn't suffer from that which develops out of a distortion of it, this notion of supernature versus nature, fact, value. Because what happens, these things, these things, as we will see, um, create a distortion of the view of, of um, eternity and time um, and, and the creaturely and the creator um, and the transcendent and the imminent. And by doing that, they create all the problems we have with this, this modern setting. They create the whole conditions for the naturalistic vision. But, but let me step into that because this is where a lot of the questions I have people asking me continue to rise. So the first thing he notes is, he says, magic's concerned, as we talked about, with cosmic meanings and then uh, dangerous and life-giving powers um, below the surface of the apparent. He goes, but there are kind of four basic theories about magic. And the first one he talks about which he thinks will actually make a return to those that don't want to go the direction of a classic Christian vision or, or you know, something platonic, will be what he calls um, the animistic theory of magic. Um, and this view basically holds that magic is entirely located imminently within nature, and nature itself is defined. So it's divine. So it's kind of a pantheistic view where everything is kind of bursting forth with with forces and energies and and wills um their own powers and intentions and so therefore it there's something very magical about it 
Um, so this, this uh, week two, in this theory, even human beings are both natural and magical. Um, they're they're, they're uh, a part of this, this whole. Um, and this would be similar to, I don't know, we've talked about Charles Taylor's work, but this would be the unbuffered self, if you will, porous, the porous self. Right. open to all of these different uh, forces that, that the, the Enlightenment buffer came to kind of to build some distance up between us. Um, yeah, let, and let so me, let animated, me quick, of course. Quick, yeah, let me just quickly uh, just note there that, that when people hear about sort of the, sort of the, uh, the I guess, uh, the prospect of, uh, of reenchantment, uh, this is kind of where they go in kind of this animistic thinking. Um, and I think it's important for us to make it clear that, that we're not thinking that. But I think another thing that would, would also be good to note here is that uh, even if you wanted to go there, if you wanted to be, say, a druid or if, some kind of a animist, uh, you know, with, you know, a, a way of thinking about the, the natural world that's, you know, akin to how maybe Native Americans think or, or thought or, or people from Africa or whatever. Well, what these folks fail to appreciate is that when you genuinely are submerged in this sort of spiritual world where things are unbuffered, you're vulnerable and you're fearful. This is not, this is not a, this is not a way of, to experience, uh, sort of, you know, sort of the kind of, you know, warm, warm fuzzies that you have when you read sword and sorcery or fantasy or, as, you know, as a kid, uh, this is a, this is a, a, a way of life in which you're afraid of witches and being hexed. Uh, you're afraid of, uh, people manipulating you, uh, through, you know, sort of spiritual forces. And so you're constantly on your guard because you're unbuffered. You can be invaded at any moment. Yeah. and uh, harmed and influenced. So if, if, you know, if we could just help new agey type people just get that uh, into their heads, into yeah. their thick skulls, <laughs> they would not long for the kind of thing that they seem to be longing for. And I don't want to trace this trail too long, but I think sometimes the, the extreme sides of the charismatic movement continue some of this in, in Christianity, they, they're seeing the devil in, in one, you know, the letters of one's bowl of soup kind of stuff, you know, um, there, there is this, this way in which the, these, um, this understanding has kind of continued on through certain, certain, um, certain views of Christianity that have not weaned off of, of something that is in conflict with its larger reality vision. Yeah, uh, an, an example, a concrete example of the problems here in practical terms is uh, when I was in Mongolia, uh, I was interviewing shamans and I was interviewing what I would describe as victims of shamans. And what, you know, what happens is a shaman will approach a young person and basically tell them, you know, your ancestral spirits are calling you to become a shaman. So you need to come train with me and it's going to cost you this amount of money to do it. And if the person refuses, no, I'm not going to do that, the shaman will tell them, well, if you don't do this, the spirits are going to start killing off members of your family one at a time until you agree. 
it's it's sort of the the ultimate in in uh, mafioso tactics yeah. Yeah. Okay, to get them to sign on to the program. And then when they go through their initiation, you know, they get their training, they do their initiation. There are all kinds of, I mean, I talked to one of them who was talking about how, and this, she said this is really kind of typical, you know, they, they move into this altered state of consciousness where they can do things physically that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise, like, like scale a tree in, in two or three steps and they're at the top of the tree, you know, things like this. And she says that you always, this particular shaman told me that they always invite in a white spirit and a black spirit because white and black spirits do things and some different things. And sometimes you can invite in other color spirits and so on. They're inviting possession. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think another thing that, that, um, I mean, you know, related to this is that when Christianity, um, entered into a world and worlds as it moved out of Judea um, and entered to uttermost parts of the world, um, it confronted a lot of this and the notion of Christ as victor and Lord now of all, all things really, really weaned a lot of the world off of this kind of stuff. Um, these, these, the, the, this kind of vision was defanged, if you will. Um, and, and again, it may linger, in places even where Christianity has made an impact, but it has tended to be in places where that larger reality vision hasn't um, hasn't uh, set forth. And one can even see that that the the kind of the intense disenchanting process of the West um, is a perversion of the original liberation that came with Christianity. Um, it's just it's it's a severing it off from the the the, the, the Christian you know biblical vision at that point. Um, it, it's kind of you know the Enlightenment could be seen as a certain kind of iconoclasm, um, destroying anything that ha- it looks like it's infused with any of this kind of enchantment. Um, and and so, but the second gr- uh, group, which is he's going to call um, the Platon- Platonic theory of magic, um, and he's I understand why he's using that. I think I'd, I would have labeled it the classic, vi, classic vision of, of transcendence. Um, and it has a variety of forms. I mean, you have the Platonic, you have the Aristotelian wedded to the Platonic. Then you have the Christian that kind of takes what is consistent in those with the biblical vision and then guts out the stuff that aren't. Um, so we could lump all that. But in short, he puts it very well. He says, um, this theory, um, in this ancient theory, magic, though, saturating nature has its origin from beyond nature. To this theory, the world that we can touch and see is derivative. It's not primary. It's derivative. It, you know, in Christian language, it depends on God. That's what being a creature is, endlessly dependent on the source of all things. Um, So it's derived from and dependent on a transcendental immaterial reality. Without this higher reality, the ever-changing observable world, the visible, um, in which we live would be a field of incomprehensible flux and contingency. Um, So we can see meaning and order and value in nature because nature itself is dependent on the intrinsic meaning of the eternal order and the primal goodness of divine reason. To this second theory, there is a transcendent and intellective beyond that orders and sustains the natural world into what we're beyond, uh, born into. 
Um, and so he, what he's trying to do is show that there is inherent meaning and order, but it's not grounded in nature. It's grounded in nature's genuine um, participation in the gift of being that has been donated it, to it from from the transcendent. Um, this is the creation ex nihilo really, I think, points out more than any of the other visions, the way in which this is radically contingent. Um, so this is here. But then what happens is there becomes a, a development. And this is where things get confusing, even in the church, because a lot of times, unfortunately, I don't think we think anymore from the classic transcendental vision. We think of this changed vision. Um, and this is a place where um, basically by around the 14th century, um, what started to develop is a deep interest in the self-standing and concrete whatness of created things. In other words, created natural things started to be looked at not merely as participating for their being and what they are in a higher transcendental order, but started to become interesting in their own right as if they were self-standing as if they had a pure nature that did not derive from or depend on anything else. This is where we start to see the first fruits of a two-tier level of reality. You have the spiritual, and then you have a nature that is self-standing. The fact realm doesn't need the, the, the spiritual or, or other realm in order, in order to, to be made sense of or to, to uh, understand it. Now, when we think of today, for example, Van Tillian presuppositionally, what we think of them attacking when they talk about autonomous man or reason, that would never have made sense on the prior view. But it would make sense in this view because this view thinks that you can have a pure human nature that can be autonomous from the transcendent and therefore somehow go its own way. And so the attempt to move from here to the transcendent is, is, again, a violation of orders at this point. It's tempting to do something it can't do. Flip it. The supernatural now becomes a problem for the natural because if the natural is self-standing, what is there for the supernatural to do? Well, at first it can provide values, but eventually that gets severed, and then we throw out, you know, God of the gaps. Once God's no longer needed to explain anything, you can throw the supernatural order out, and then you la land with the natural. So this notion of um, basically is what what is, is called pure nature, and it was really big in, in something being fought during the 16th century. And sadly, I think a lot of the Reformation ran with it in its assumptions. Um, I think the scholastic figures tried to slow it down. They they saw saw this this starting to develop. I mean, you can read all the way up a bit later um, with Turretin and other figures who had not succumbed to it. Um, but but uh, by and large, almost anything written in in a probably, you know, probably the last 200 years is already immersed in this pure, pure nature verse, maybe even longer. Um, so, tell so anyway, me, you, you have this in this case, the super. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned the kind of the kind of an important transition. Was it the 14th century that you noted? Was that the time you were thinking about? Yeah, well, that's what uh, Tyson puts it, and, and and we've talked about it before, where the shifts in in views of God and the nominalism start to come in, and I think that's what starts to give the the particular its its kind of significance. Um, I know it's coupled yeah, with complicated things, like. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think I think that's an important thing to to kind of go back and and revisit a little bit for our, our listeners because uh, I think sometimes uh, we lose uh, it's kind of this kind of the history of the development of theology and fail yeah. to appreciate that some of the uh, heresies and wrong turns actually occurred in in theology first and found their way yeah. into other places. Uh, and when, when we fail to recognize those wrong turns or those heretical ideas uh, in Christian theology itself, we can, we can more or less assume that we can, can kind of live with the modern sort of way of doing theology without having to go back and address what went wrong. So like when you think about nominalism, that's a, that's a, 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 a thing that's, you know, complicated, and I know that Glenn has helped us to see uh, that it's not all bad, and I agree, it's not all bad. If we didn't have some kind of nominalist term, we probably wouldn't have experimental science like we have today. But at the same time, uh, it's, a, it's worth noting that this isn't just like a bunch of atheists who thought up a, a kind of a, a Trojan horse to kind of sneak into Christianity. This is something that developed within the Christian you know, yeah. sort of a theological tradition yeah. that actually got exported into into the larger culture. That's right. It, it, I mean, one one way of putting it, and I think Tyson will put it this way, is the new atheism is really the byproduct of this theological error that developed, um, that did not hold in place things. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not going down the line that there was ever a perfect synthesis that held everything in a perfect balance, that there's a golden theological moment. But there is one that had really carved out a genuine, distinct Christian view of transcendence that owed itself completely to the biblical vision and a metaphysics of creation that was not autonomous, has always been understood as, as, um, as being absolutely originated, continued in existence, and, and dependent for what it is and what it's to become on the infinite source of, of what it is. And so... Um, and so, but what ends up happening is, and I don't want to retrace all that history, but you do have a shift from a full vision of God and God's unified attributes, where when God does something, God's will and intelligibility are, are, are connected to one where God's will starts to become so emphasized that anything God does in the world, because God is so radically free, even free from his own intelligibility, that God just arbitrarily chooses things. And so it's about the imposition of a, of a will rather than a, a will that expresses the full character of God. And when that shifts, we start to see everything else because it doesn't have an inherent intelligibility grounded in God and oriented to God. Now its intelligibility is, is genuinely there, but it's arbitrary. <laughs> and so yeah, it not- begins to be made... Mm-hmm. Yeah, now now we all know that if if uh, Glenn controlled the Terminator, he would go back in time and kill Rousseau, right? Well, I've played with this idea a little bit myself, and I would have taken the Terminator further back <laughs> to the great Franciscan Dominican debates in you know the period of time that we're talking yeah. about, here. <laughs> and I think I would have sent him after maybe I don't know uh, William of Ockham, 
maybe uh, John Dunn Scottis, you know, yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of those guys. I actually I was working on an idea for a short story on this uh, for a while. And, and in my short story, I uh, had a, a monk, a, you know, you know, some, um, maybe, maybe of a new order, maybe uh, in the order of Leibowitz, if you remember <laughs> Chronicles, you know, the Chronicle, you know, uh, you know, the Canticle, the Canticle of Leibowitz. Uh, that great science fiction, yeah, yep. yeah, that great science fiction story where maybe a monk in the 24th century goes back to the 14th century to take out William of Ockham of John Duns Scotus and then can't because there are <laughs> angels actually protecting uh, these Franciscan monks and he, he's unable to actually get the job done because in the, in God's good order there's a providential ordering of things and those guys were necessary to serve God's purposes you know in the grand scheme of things even though many regrettable things have happened <laughs> as a result of their work. But anyway, that's my, that's, that's my well, twist. That's my take on it. Yeah. I, I, I want to just uh, tip the hat to uh, some of the things that Occam did that were worthwhile. He's the first person who articulated a clear theory that uh, property is a human right. Not well, alienable right, in fact. Maybe that's why so, we want to go after. Yeah. No. <laughs> maybe that's why we want to have to go, better go after Scottus. Maybe. <laughs> and and I we don't should think probably they, do some more nominalism at some point. Yeah, yeah, and, and really getting in in the you know into the the deep consequences of it. Um, but one of the things he also then after he talks about this, this he calls that the supernatural view um, of, of magic. And he contrasts again with classical views of transcendence. Um, and and I, this is oftentimes used in the theological literature as well, especially if you're reading it today, is they do understand that this, this, um, this supernatural view has a strong affinity to the naturalist view. And this is one of the things Tyson actually says. He said, this is why your William Craig's and your Alvin Plantinga um, can be what he calls modern orthodox. They fit right in with the naturalistic vision. And he said, um, and so he, he would say that, and this is very hard because a lot of our evangelical apologists have been educated in, in that kind of tradition, supernatural versus natural. And so they're always looking for these, these points of unity. And they oftentimes are talking about things that someone from the ancient church would, wouldn't have even made sense to. They'd be probably horrified that we ever, ever went into that territory. Um, it's not questioning their orthodoxy. It's just saying that it is, it is one indebted to this alternative metaphysic um, that is a changed view of transcendence and its relation to nature. And it's one that would affirm in many cases a pure nature. Yeah, I think that we need to be careful uh, when we use analytic philosophy. And both Craig and Plantinga are analytic guys. Uh, a lot of people in the evangelical world uh, misattribute, uh, you know, or misuse the term classical apologetics and apply it to those guys because they talk about reason. But they're talking about reason in a different way than we're talking about here. You know, Tyson is talking yeah, about the, yeah. great, the great tradition and the way Christians uh, in the past understood a vital connection between, you know, human reason as, as it's exercised properly and the logos of God, meaning, of course, the second person of the Trinity, uh, so the kind of thing that we're th what we're referring to when we talk about classical apologetics is not William Lane Craig. It's not uh, Plantinga. It's it's something. Well, it's something like 
well, Irenaeus, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Tom, what the fourth view is, because I'm, I'm missing one big one that's historically significant. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to read it real quick. Though. I do want to, I do want to add one, one, uh, one qualification. Um, again, I don't want to say that those figures don't have anything to say or never engage aspects of the Christian classical view. I mean, they do arguments, existence of God and things like that. It's just they do it in a mode that would be more akin to the supernatural view of magic here. Um, now for him, so maybe you'll be, you'll qualify this because this last one sort of is, is the, well, he, he says, I can't even think of a better way of putting it. And he goes, this is a bad way of putting it. He calls it the anti-magical theory of magic. And that's where the, the uh, supernatural theory en ends up going. And it's basically a new theory about the nature of nature arose out of this supernatural theory. If nature does not need supernature to be what it is, and if nature can be understood in a purely natural way, then supernatural becomes functionally superfluous to our knowledge of the world. And so we can disregard kind of the supernatural and the magical and the metaphysical as something outside, extrinsic to um, true knowledge and tangible reality. Um, and so he goes, it is now possible to think that religion, magic, and transcendence concern philosophy as mere fictions. And this leads to what he calls basically the, the naturalistic um, view. And he says there's still magic going on here, but it's all, it's all been placed within the imminent frame, but the imminent frame can't contain it. So that's where he sort of ends mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Now I'm going to offer a fifth view of magic, just okay. for the record. This is this is what I would describe as the historic view of magic. If you go to what I would describe really as the golden age of magic theory in the Renaissance, there are two types of magic. You've got natural magic, which makes use of occult, that is Latin for hidden, forces that God placed within the universe. And if you are one of the wise, you know how to manipulate those forces to get the results that you want. In other words, magic is a kind of occult physics. Yeah, that's natural magic. Um, that's viewed as generally okay. Uh, but the question is, how did you get your knowledge of how it worked? That might have come from demonic sources, in which case you've got to avoid it. The other version is artificial magic, which is magic that is performed by basically demonic agency. It's distinguished from miracle because miracle is performed by divine agency um, or through angels or saints or something like that. Um, magic, uh, magic is different. That's how magic differs from miracle in this sense. But artificial magic is basically demonic uh, magic. And the, the question here ultimately ends up being, where does the power that drives magic come from? That's the key question. Natural magic, it's God-given. It's part of the natural order, although one that's hidden from us uh, by normal processes. The other, it, it's got a supernatural agency involved. Now, it's worth noting that to the medievals, things like quenching steel when you're forging it qualified as magic because the quality of the thing that you are working with changed. It was a kind of transmutation. The same thing even applied to things like fermentation, um, bread, bread rising with yeast, all of those kinds of things were versions of natural magic in this vision of the world. 
you know, Glenn, uh, you would know more about this, obviously, than me. When we think about spirits, meaning, you know, alcoholic drinks, um, is there something of this at work in the, you know, when we see this transformation, sort of, are they, do they did maybe people at one time think that there really were uh, spiritual forces that were somehow moving into the liquids? I don't think so. Um, I'd have to, that's something I'd have to check into. But our use of the word spirits, I mean, it can mean anything from, you know, hard liquor to turpentine. Right. So uh, I think that there's there's a secondary meaning of the word spirit that's at work there that is probably only distantly connected to the primary meaning. But yeah. I'd have to check. Yeah, it, it would, it, I'm just curious. So, you know, anyway, maybe maybe we can revisit that at some time. Well, and, and, you know, I, and I think that that was, I think, a weakness of the book, especially when you're dealing with magic. Um, I mean, to his credit, he did hint at some of that when he was he really talks about when until we really have our, our minds able to immerse themselves in, a, in more more of a magical world. We'll be able to start picking up an antenna for realities that that the, these this this uh, narrowed down lens can't apprehend. Um, this doesn't mean a, a pure opening up to 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 to, to, to subjectivity and and naivety. It's just talking about the way that because there is more to reality, being able to to refine our language and concepts and and our our antenna for that um, is important. He gets into Lewis a bit with that, and then he does make the connection that I think Tolkien does is that there there is something of magic in the old sense Glenn's talking about that gets converted into, into technology um, on, on its more negative side. Um, but he did not flesh that out. And it would be interesting to see the way that what, what Glenn's talking about would exhibit itself in, in the animist tradition versus the, the, what he defines as the kind of platonic or the supernatural um, vision, because in the last ver version that the supernatural um, where there's a conflict, um, it becomes almost something silly, right? There are these outside things invading or this, you know, in, in, because we know now there's pure nature and nature can explain all that. But in a world that is, is um, filled with a, a richer hierarchy of realities, um, things like that may not have gone away. They just may, they just may be off our radar. Yeah, one of the things that I was introduced to concerning magic back when I was studying cultural anthropology is a distinction that uh, is current in, in cultural anthropology between uh, religion and magic. Uh, in, the, in this distinction, mm -hmm. magic is understood to be manipulative in character. Uh, in other words, a kind of power that allows you to control uh, people or circumstances or, or, or material things. And religion is understood to be the submission of a worshiper to a larger order. So, in other words, uh, magic is, is me imposing my will upon things, and uh, genuine religion is submitting to the will of God or, or gods or something like that. Yeah. That's, that's interesting you mention that because he actually he, he addresses that directly. And it's probably better just to read his reply, because one of the things he's, he does is he breaks down some different ways in which we use the term meaning uh, magic. He goes, uh, thirdly, though this gives the term magic a meaning that I'm not completely comfortable with, 
Magic has a sort of social meaning connected with power in a manner that is usually contrasted with religion. Here, at least schematically, religion entails submission of one's life to a higher power, but magic entails a manipulation of the minds and lives of others for one's own ends. Um, without getting into interesting arguments about whether or how one can differentiate uh, magic from religion, clearly a magician is a figure of power. Further, the magician's instrumental powers come from arcane yet fundamental knowledge. If one sort of magic is the magician's casting of illusions and the use of subtle power to manipulate and control both nature and the lives of others, then our age of commercially and governmentally applied information and communication technologies situates itself right in this kind of magic. So he kind of nods his head off, uh, you know, I mean, nods at least <laughs> his head off, but in the direction of... Uh, of that use of magic and <laughs> power, that imagery was related to magic. <laughs> yeah, maybe some magicians want to take your head off, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, no. I, I, I think related to this, though, is something that we should kind of hold on to a little bit as we think this whole thing through. Uh, and it's this whole matter of, uh, you know, knowledge, arcane knowledge, how this relates to sort of, you know, knowledge is power. Uh, this brings up, you know, the uh, the provenance of science that C.S. Lewis addresses in um, the Abolition of Man, where he he said that when it comes to the origins of science, it, it's coming it's coming out of a dark period uh, in the history of the West, and this is one what what Glenn I think was referring to earlier when he was referring to sort of the, the history of magic, particularly fascination with it in the early Renaissance. So. There's, the, you know, the alchemists, these 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 people who are seeking to control, manipulate, uh, often through deception, often through illusion. I mean, illusions, deceptions. This this is the this is dark power. You know, when we're talking about illusion, deception, the father of lies, and so forth. So it's uh, mental games. Um, you know, even your example earlier, Glenn, of the shaman who was uh, on the make. You know, she, she or he, if I can't, I can't remember the sex, uh, was uh, recruiting people to be members of or to be uh, sort of, uh, I guess, acolytes or disciples uh, at the cost of maybe losing family members. But then if you want to sort of pro progress in your knowledge of the of, you know, the, these these things, you need to pay up. You know, there's a kind of a Joel Olstein kind of effect. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's there's another thing that's kind of worth noting. Just kind of going back to what you were talking about um, with um, manipulation and things like that. One of the things that's almost universal is that if you are using magic to control others, it's black magic. Yeah, yeah. And you can make a good argument that a lot of the things that are going on today are the equivalent of black magic. Yeah. Yeah, see that 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 was uh, Tyson's point, and then he also coupled it with there is also still what we could call good magic today. He goes, we live in an age of good magic as well, not just the government and manipulative through technology, but the positive wonders of, of our power over nature. Particularly, medical science has realized healing and public health in measures totally unattainable in previous ages, and it is from harnessing. Um, th these good forces and meanings that 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 are genuinely a part of the reality, and his, so his point is that that yeah we haven't you know this this anti magic uh, magic if you will 
um, has just really cut itself off from a a fuller way of understanding this stuff, but not from there being, being the actual practice of, of good and bad magic. And I think that's one of the things he wants to retrieve is his point is, is things that things that show up in all of our lives. Like we were talking about um, being consciousness, beauty, friendship, love that can't be reduced to, I mean, when, when they become reduced, they become absurd. Um, but when you actually have a fuller vision of things, they start to not become absurd, become, but become placed in a way that their reality is not only genuine and real, um, but they, can, they make sense of our whole existence in fundamentally wider and fuller ways that, that, that fulfill our natures rather than leave us with these fragmented aspects of reality that don't cohere. Yeah, and related to that, you know, when we think about good magic, um, and if we think good magic would be medicine, well, with medicine, you know, you you clearly have the fruit of the, you know, biological sciences and and chemical sciences, but there's still the the will to heal, and the and this is not a scientifically uh, sort of de- derived. Uh, phenomenon we, we don't we, we don't have a chemical that uh, we can categorize as the will to heal <laughs> in other words there's something yeah, there's yeah. something about about uh, goodness and creativity yeah. when we think about medicines um, that actually are efficacious and do good things for us you know antibiotics so forth there's a kind of leveraging of natural phenomena but there's a there's a there's a telos that's at work. We know what health looks like, or we have a pretty good idea of what health looks like, and we're trying to leverage natural forces in favor of health. We're not just, in other words, this is not just something. This is not pure science. This is not just figuring out how things work or why things are going, you know, the way they're going. Mm-hmm. Even even terms like illness uh, and and wrong uh, or bad applied to the human body uh, are not, yeah. you know, something that uh, we derive from the scientific method. We're bringing those, those values and those, um, you know, those, those good qual- or good character or good thoughts to the science and using the science in a good way. And so that's, you know, where we could say, you know, kind of a white magic in the scientific world is occurring. Now, obviously, there are unintended consequences, you know, you know, uh, like collateral damage, maybe like from something like uh, chemotherapy. You know, we're, we're kind of crude in certain ways that we go about this, but we're trying to refine uh, the, the, the things that we do so that, you know, the, the healthy outcomes are what we that, that we're looking for are, uh, you know, what what do occur and we try to mitigate the costs uh, in terms of ill effects. Well, and, and that really ties to that fuller fuller range of meaning. Um, the again, why, why why be concerned with with you know health and healing, right? Um, if if just you know survival utility um, and you know very practical utility is is the the chief and highest aim of everything. I mean, I can understand why to be healthy to survive in certain kinds of ways, but it's it's the it's the richer web of meaning tied to living <laughs> that is a part of that, um, and and that's where where the 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 richer the social worlds and the communicative worlds um, 
beyond just merely the physical um, become become really pointers to um, the this larger dimension of reality that that uh, that is answered by um, I think in particular well by the Christian view of transcendence. Um, so and then it's interesting because he, he he's kind of talking about the way in which um, imagination, our imaginative power and our lyrical powers um, begin to not just be um, distractions but actually are, are maybe very much a part of our natural way of participating in and, and, and working with these higher realities that are there. Um, and I think Lewis, of course, and Tolkien were on to this. I mean, uh, you know, you had it with uh, MacDonald and, and uh, uh, Owen Barfield and some of those different figures. I mean, they really were trying to, to, to um, get a hold of that. Um, but but I, I think this is a, it's a very interesting work. I think it's a it's probably the best entrance work for people who want to look at these questions from a neat angle of of magic and enchantment. Um, it isn't trying to be a theological work, although it has import for theology. And I would qualify certain things here in different ways. Um, but I do think he he kind of gives us a lot to think about with this with this work. Yeah, I especially like, I, I just read the summary article you sent around. Um, I especially liked the connection that he draws between magic and meaning. Yeah. Um, that magic is something that transcends the merely physical, the merely chemical, the merely, you know, biological, whatever, the merely scientific, to provide things like meaning, values, uh, to provide uh, morality, to provide issues of free will, all of these kinds of things that cannot really be explained purely by biological functions in us. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was a, a very, very interesting way of approaching it. Um, that again, frankly, ties back to a lot of the uh, things we've talked about before, and uh, to the stuff I do on enchantment. Yeah, so, yeah, I'd like to. Um, I'd like to do that. I thought was pretty. Yeah, I'd like to think a little bit about the, I guess, etymology of the word magic. I, I believe that the magi, the wise men who came to, uh, you know, pay homage to Christ, you know, the term magi is related to magic, magician, so forth. So there we have in the scripture yeah. uh, three magicians. Uh, you could say, who are viewed in a positive light. Now, I'm probably doing violence yeah. to the yeah. to the origin of the word here, but that's, that's an association no. that I made. No, you're not. No, you are not. The word, <laughs> our word magic comes from Magus, a uh, Zoroastrian priest. Yeah. And in Rome, the word magic or the, the, the association here was twofold. On the one hand, you have it in the sense of the ability to do, to harness into some form of supernatural forces, whatever to do, uh, to do something. But you also had it in the sense of the word charlatan. Oh, <laughs> got it, got it. So, so there, there, was, there was really a complex use of the word based on how you perceived these guys coming from Persia, the ancient enemy of Rome. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, this is the old, uh, the old well, story. It, it the, em the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
but it is interesting in the in the in the biblical story of of Christ and his birth and and the early years that this this shows up there and you you hear you know here you have stargazers right reading the stars at night and they end up coming to pay homage and 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 getting the special revelation that this is the one to which all this stuff points and whether you like it or not they're doing something that definitely qualifies as astrology yes yes that's right. That's right. And, yep. and there's an interesting, uh, I think it's a troparium um, for the incarnation or something like that in Eastern Orthodox Church, where it talks about how God used a star to bring the star worshiping people to worship the one true star who is the light of the world or something like that. It's actually a rather, rather neat, neat prayer. Well, and you see there that richer web of meaning um, that that Orthodox draw upon that is very foreign to those of us that have been influenced so much by pure nature um, is that and that that this makes this makes sense. Um, And again, this doesn't you know, this isn't an affirmation of once, you know, Christ, therefore going back to the shadow and making that everything. Um, What it's saying, though, is that the creation points towards its cre- I mean we come at it a different way um, we've talked about this before in, in the way in which you know the visible manifests the invisible attributes of God as, as Romans tells us um, that they're clearly seen and of course we suppress this knowledge so creation we don't have access to pure creature because pure nature is mediated to us through being but then we don't have access to being itself because it's mediated to us through creation and so that's the big puzzle. Um, and that's really where Glenn's talking about that mediating position. We don't have pure nature because there is no pure nature. Nature comes participating in the source of being. But we don't have access to God through nature because being becomes mediated through nature. And so this is where you can talk either of a sacramental worldview or one in which sacrament is, is possible or means of grace. How? Because what ends up happening is, of course, we suppress this knowledge. It's not getting through that mediation. But when Christ comes and he brings these things back into a proper relation to the the transcendent in its deepest sense, bread and wine now become those means of mediating that transcendent truth through that creaturely vehicle, which is which, if seen properly, is is seeing the significance of Christ and Christ's uh, Christ's work and being at the heart of of all material reality as well, um, and so so there are rich things going on here that we we don't get if we just flatten this stuff out. Yeah, I think that that's actually one of the major flaws within the evangelical world, in that we've participated or or adopted so much of modernity that we don't really understand how a physical object can convey spiritual grace. Right, right. And the net result is a, a, a complete ignoring of uh, the sacraments. You know, you show up at church and it's like, oh, it's the first Sunday of the month. We got communion. We're going to be getting out late. You know, there's no, don't you hate that? Don't you hate that? (laughs) There's absolutely no sense that this is this that that there is something really remarkable going on here, and that these physical objects do have greater significance 
than just a little piece of bread and a little drink of, well, typically grape juice in an evangelical church. Yeah, thanks yeah. to the Methodists. Yeah. But I think, uh, you know, <laughs> you know we, we talked about this earlier in our show on mystery, you know, the mysterion being the, the, the Greek that's translated to the Latinized, you know, a term, you know, English, we say it use in English, sacramental. sacramental. Yeah. So we, we have this, uh, when we speak of the sacraments, we're already kind of one step away from the original Greek word, uh, of course. But the original Greek word, as we noted in our earlier episode, uh, mysterion, refers to something hidden in something else. Uh, by, very, yeah. by its very nature, that means that uh, you can't measure this thing. You can't quantify it. But there is a value present and that's not placed yeah. in the thing by your faith. Um, it's present yeah. just in the nature of things, but it's hidden. It's, it's not entirely evident. Yeah. You know, we can, we can say that's the way the incarnation uh, was. It wasn't as though everyone who walked up to Christ yeah. saw that he was the son of God, you know, and recognized him as such, but he was, yeah. you know, mysteriously he was. Right. Uh, anyway, so yeah. we should probably bring this uh, plane into a, for a landing. By the way, I met, I met the guy that I think made that meme, and uh, he's actually a pilot, a commercial <laughs> pilot. And so he, he, he knows what he's doing. When he <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I could say more about him, but I probably shouldn't because he's had a fascinating life and he's done some fascinating things. But yeah. anyway, uh, let's 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 land this baby. Anything you want to say as we conclude, Glenn, and I'll, then I'll go to you, Tom. I'm done. Okay. Anything else, Tom? Uh, no, no. I thought this was an interesting work to springboard some of the things we've talked about before. So, if you're a regular of the show, maybe none of this was fully new, but I had a lot of people asking about some of these themes that we covered at different points, but never really tied together. And I thought this work kind of did it. And this will allow kind of some of the new things that are coming down the pike um, to not have to say, go listen to episode, you know, 400 ago. Um, <laughs> we also re retrieved it uh, and, and dealt with it again more recently. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Anyway, we really do appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. We hope you can join us for our Pacific Northwest tour. Um, we appreciate uh, the financial gifts that uh, folks send along to us. We, we don't spend any time, you know, twisting people's arms and talking about we're about to go out of business or anything. We were able to pay the bills because, uh, you, know, as, you know, God has prompted people to give. Uh, you can give to the Theology Podcast through the Fight Left Feast Network. That's a great way to do it. We, we like those guys a lot. You can go to our, our website, uh, the theologypodcast.com, I believe, is the, is the correct address, and you can give it that way. You can go with, give to us through Anchor Podcast. And people do all of those things, and we're really very, very grateful. And people also uh, rate the show. You know, they've given us five stars. I think we're up over 500, not 500, uh, 200 on iTunes. Wow. And I know that that's, yeah. um, you know, not even the place where most people listen to us. I think most people listen to us in other locations. But I think that on Spotify, you can rate us. Some people listen to us there. You can, uh, as I know, to go to iTunes and rate us there. If there's some platform that you're on that I don't know about that you can give us a good rating, uh, please do so. We're told by the people in the know that it helps. Anyway, uh, that's, <laughs> I guess, it for now. Uh, we appreciate you again. Once, once again, I said that before, but, I, but we really mean it, so it bears repeating. And bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> 
Bye now. Bye now.